And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you'll sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. May we understand the truthfulness of the words of Christ and what he actually is and means to us and for the salvation of anyone. May we understand it and have full confidence and belief in it. In the name of Christ, amen. John 14, verses 4 to 7. Now we have Thomas who asks a question. In the previous chapter, at the end of the previous chapter, after Christ exhorted his disciples to love one another and that he would be leaving for a short time, he meant it in two ways, leaving for a short time for his crucifixion and resurrection, but also leaving permanently. Peter, naturally, was troubled by that, and therefore Peter speaks up and he asks a question about what he's going to do, what Christ is going to do. Well, now it's the turn of Thomas the Apostle. Even we'll find later in chapter 14 that Philip will raise the question in verses 8 to 11. Philip the Apostle will raise the question. And then in verse 22, Judas, another one of the, of the disciples, not Judas Iscariot, in verse 22, he will also ask a question. So at this point, in the remaining days of our Lord upon the earth, before his crucifixion, the disciples, the apostles, were perplexed at some of the things he was saying. And therefore, whatever he's been teaching them, they don't let those things sink in. They don't have full faith, full confidence, full assurance of what Jesus said and meant. They have some understanding of it. They have some faith in it. But because of the troubling words of Christ, it causes them to be confused and perplexed because they are looking at what he's saying and the potential of trouble and affliction awaiting them, and they don't want that. So they let the afflictions that they anticipate confuse their faith. This is the problem with the disciples. And it's not only their problem, it's also our problem. This is what happens in verses 4 and 5. This confusion because of the expected, anticipated troubles ahead. But then in verses 6 and 7, Christ emphasizes the fact that He is the revelation of the Father and the only way to the Father for anyone. Which means no matter what troubles, no matter what afflictions, no matter what persecutions await, one must believe in Him. That is the only way of salvation. It's not good to believe in any God or in anyone or in anything or in any other person or any other religion. We must believe in Jesus Christ. He is the only way, no matter what problems or troubles people anticipate when they ex explain and preach the gospel that Jesus is the way. So let's unpack it some more. Verses 4 and 5, they go together. Verses 4 and 5. First, in verse 4, Jesus, after saying that he is going away, preparing a place, and will come again, and he will receive the disciples in that place, verse 3, he assures them or informs them of what they already know. And you know the way where I am going. They already know it. Even though he hasn't been speaking in terms of the way yet, he does in this passage, they already know the way, however it might be described. They know the way is in Christ. They know that. And he tells them 
that. Even though Thomas says, in verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? This is not said because Thomas did not know. He was completely a blank slate. He had no knowledge of the true way. He's not saying it because of that. He's saying it because he's confused in a moment of doubt. If he didn't have this confusion and moment of doubt, if he didn't have trouble on his mind, which Christ told them, let not your heart be troubled, verse 1, if he didn't have those kinds of troubling thoughts, he wouldn't have asked this question. He would have already known. It was already announced many, many times before. But this also does remind us in verse 5 that Thomas has to grow in faith. Thomas, just like all of us, we need to grow in faith. So verse 4, where actually did Christ say that you know the way and you don't need me to show you anymore. You don't need me to show you. You already know and understand. Did Christ already teach them that? Certainly. Certainly he did. And even John the Baptist did. And all the prophets who preceded John the Baptist. Let's start in John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Did they know that their salvation is found in Christ? Yes. And the way to heaven to the many dwelling places of the Father, are found in Christ. They indeed knew it. John chapter 1. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist preached this of Christ. And then, verse 34, John the Baptist says, And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John preached it. And those who followed John, eventually some of them, 12 of them followed Christ. Verses 35 and following. When they do seek Christ and follow Christ, what do they say of Christ? John 1.41 He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. Andrew told Simon Peter, we have found the Messiah. They knew who they were following. Look also at verse 45. 145. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of of Joseph. Also notice verse 49. Nathaniel. Nathaniel said to him, uh, or answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And even Christ in verse 51 calls himself the Son of Man. These disciples, apostles, they heard this, they knew this, they confess it right here. We see their confessions right here in chapter 2. We can also see in chapter 6, John chapter 6, John six sixty six, When many of the followers were disappearing, withdrawing, they were walking away from Christ, it says in John six sixty six, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Jesus therefore said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. What does Simon Peter say on behalf of the rest of the apostles? What does he say? Lord, to whom, 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. 
They know he is the way. And we have believed, 69, and have come to know. They believe it and they have come to know from personal knowledge that you are the Holy One of God. They know it. They know it already. Also chapter 11. John chapter 11. Martha. And what we read of Martha is very likely also true of Mary, her sister, and her brother Lazarus. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. But the words are coming out of the mouth of Martha. What does Martha know? John 11, 24. 11, 24. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Remember, Lazarus is dead. And she says, I know that he, my brother Lazarus, will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Why? Because Martha, Mary, and Lazarus all are believers in Christ. That's why he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He's not doubting it, but he's challenging it so that she might express it. And she does. Verse 27, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ the Son of God, even He who comes into the world. So, these are just a few of the examples in the book of John where Christ had already shown them, taught them the way. That's why He said in John 14, 4, and you know the way where I am going. You know exactly what I'm talking about. It's already been revealed to you By my Father, by my Holy Spirit, these truths are known to you. However, they didn't have the kind of faith or the amount of faith they should have had. That's why, John 14, 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? His mind was confused. His mind was troubled. That's why Jesus told them not to have a troubled mind in verse 1. Let or heart, let not your heart be troubled. Don't be troubled at the things I'm saying that I am going away, but eventually you will come to my way where I am going, to my destination. You will be there. Meantime, don't be troubled by any of this. You know the way. But Thomas says, I don't know the way. He's thrown into confusion because of the expectation of trouble or the thoughts of trouble. But we shouldn't, we we need to blame Thomas, but blame Thomas with humility because Thomas is just like you and me. This is the same thing we do. We do this daily. We know what's true, but we don't act on what's true and we ask the Lord questions. We wonder, we are perplexed, we are confused, We are depressed and discouraged when we shouldn't be. And we ask the Lord the same kinds of questions. Lord, why? And Thomas here is doing it also. It's wrong and it's sinful to do so. We shouldn't be confused. We should have greater faith. And if we don't have faith, whatever is not from faith is sin. Romans 14, 23. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For all who come to him must believe that he is and he, he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Hebrews eleven six, Romans fourteen twenty three, and Hebrews eleven six. We should have faith, and it's wrong. But we, when we criticize Thomas and observe his question, we have to see ourselves in Thomas, because we are just like he is. Now, did the disciples in the book of John? Did they grow in faith? Were they taught to grow in faith? And are we to do the same? Yes. Let's go to John chapter 2. John 2, 
John 2, 11. Remember, John chapter 2 is after John chapter 1. Not only in chapter divisions, but also chronologically. These 12 are already following him. They've already been with him for some time. They've already confessed in chapter 1 their faith in him. Correct? So look at John 2, 11. When Jesus turns water into wine at the wedding of Cana of Galilee, notice what it says in 2, 11. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. They believed in him, but they had already believed in him. So this means that after this incident, they had greater faith, greater belief in him and confidence in what he preached and who he was coming for their redemption. Verse 22, John 2, 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. What did Jesus just say? In a figure of speech, in a metaphor, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. They had experiential knowledge and greater faith when it actually did happen. We might turn to John chapter 20 to see that this actually did happen. John chapter 20 and verse 8. John 20 verse 8. Then entered in therefore the other disciple also who had first come to the tomb and he saw and believed. He saw and believed. What John said the disciples did in John 2.22, John himself did in John 20, verse 8. Once the actual act or miracle of the resurrection did take place, and he saw the empty tomb, he believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. He grew in faith. Also chapter 11. Chapter 11, Growth in Faith. Chapter 11 and verse 15. Lazarus is dead. We return to Mary and Martha. Chapter 11, verse 15. Jesus says, And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Jesus intentionally was not there when Lazarus died. He knew he was sick and dying, but he didn't go there. He waited some time on purpose so that you may believe. Believe what? Have greater faith, greater belief in who he is and the power he has to raise the dead. We already read verses 24 to 27. Martha says, yes, I know who you are. And I know that there will be a resurrection, a day of resurrection, when the return of Christ happens. She says that already. But what she didn't know was that at that moment, Christ wanted to raise Christ, uh, Lazarus up from the dead. So then, verse 40. 11, verse 40. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you, If you believe, you will see the glory of God? If you believe, you will see the glory of God. And what was that? The power, the glorious power of God through Christ to raise Lazarus up from the dead just shortly before he himself would be raised from the dead to give them a foretaste of what would happen to Christ himself. Lazarus was raised to die again, but Jesus would be raised just shortly after that never to die again. Raised immortally, the first fruits from the dead. So, we see John is teaching here in John 14 that these disciples and we as Jesus' disciples must grow in faith. Like the desperate man said to Christ concerning his son, Mark 9, 24. 
Mark 9, 24. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, but I want to believe more. Help my unbelief. Didn't Jesus say to his own disciples in Matthew 6, he said, O you men of little faith, 6, 25 to 34, men of little faith, why? To exhort them to have greater faith, more faith. Romans 1.16, that we who believe in the gospel are saved, Jew or Gentile, and from 1.16 and 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. From faith to faith. Romans 1.16 and 17. We grow in faith. In fact, we should pray for one another as the Apostle prayed in Ephesians 3.17 that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Doesn't Christ already dwell in the hearts of the Ephesians through faith? Yes. Yet his prayer in Ephesians 3 is that the Ephesians might grow in faith and have Christ dwelling in their hearts even more through faith. And this glory, this glorious faith what God does in us is also in 2 Corinthians 3.18 so that we might be transformed from glory to glory. 2 Corinthians 3.18 From glory to glory. From lesser glory to greater glory until its fruition, until its fulfillment when Christ returns and receives us into heaven. This is the faith that we have. It grows from smaller to greater amounts. The glory from smaller to greater amounts. Thomas, he said it only because he lacked the faith. He let the troubles of the world or the troubles that Christ told them to anticipate cloud his mind, muddy his heart so that he didn't have faith. He needed to strive against it to overcome it. Not let any problems get in the way. Well, Christ then in verses 6 and 7, John 14, 6. He asserts for the first time in this way with this expression. This is the only place in the scripture that says it in this way. This verse, verse 6, has become a famous verse in scripture. One of the famous verses in Scripture, one of the top five or top ten scriptures that people have heard at least once in their life. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Christ took the opportunity to emphasize in no uncertain terms what he has been teaching all along. That if there is going to be any means or any road to salvation and eternal life, it's in Him. He is the only way. When He says the way, He means the only way. And even the way that the Greek language is formed here with the definite article, the way, the truth, the life, it's likely that He intended to emphasize the way, the truth, the life. The only way, the only truth, the only life. This is what he meant. He could not and would not have meant it in any other way. On the basis of what he's already been teaching and what the rest of Scripture teaches. He meant he is the only way. The only way of salvation. He's not merely pointing the way of salvation, which all of his faithful disciples and preachers and pastors they teach by pointing the way. The pastor is not the way of salvation, but he points to the way. Jesus is not pointing the way to salvation, though he does that too, as the greatest of the prophets, as the greatest of the apostles, as the greatest of the messengers of God. Christ was that. Hebrews 3 verse 1. He is the, the high priest and apostle of our confession. Christ was that greatest teacher and prophet and apostle. No doubt about that. But here in this passage, he's saying he is the way. 
He came to be the means, the way of salvation. There is no redemption, no forgiveness of sins, no eternal life unless one puts faith in Him. He is the only way. Also, He is the only truth. The only truth. Truth, though it's in bits and pieces elsewhere, this truth is only fully and accurately, absolutely found in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the only source of reliable, authoritative, 100% untainted truth. That's what he means. And further, the life. When he says he is the life, he is the only source of eternal life. He's not only the source of physical life, since he's the creator of the world. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So who was the God who created the heavens and the earth? John 1.1, the Word, who is Christ. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is the source of physical life, but not only physical, but eternal life. Remember earlier we saw in John 6, 66 to 71, Peter says to the Lord, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. Christ is the only source of life. He's the only source of perfect obedience to the Father. His active obedience for all of his life He always obeyed the will of the Father. He always did the things that are pleasing to Him. John 8, 29. I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. He always did that with perfect, active obedience. But also in His passive obedience, when He died, did He deserve to die? No. We deserve to die because we sinned. So if he did die, he didn't die because of his sin, because he had active and perfect obedience to the will of God. So if he died, he didn't die because of his sins. He died because of our sins if we believe in him. So he is the only source of eternal life. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of eternal life is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6 23. He's the only source. He, God, made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be the sin offering on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He is the only source of eternal life. But we might also ask, should they have already known this? Should they have already known that Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus, was the only way, the only truth, and the only life? Should they have known it? And is this an established fact that throughout the whole of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, that He is the only way? Should they have known it? When He says, No one comes to the Father but through Me, Should they have known that? Should they have known these truths? Which truths are mentioned such as in Acts 4.12? And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven among men that has been given by which we must be saved. Or 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. These assertions in Scripture, these truths found elsewhere in Scripture, show that this is what Jesus and the apostles taught. But we should ask, should any of this be surprising? Should any of this be unique? And the answer is no. No, not at all. First, on God or the true God, the God of Israel, being the only Savior and the only way. Isaiah, Isaiah 
chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43, 10 and 11. Isaiah 43, 10 and 11. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, in order that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. They were to know, believe, and understand. There was no God formed before the true God, and none will be formed after him. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. He is the only true God and the only true Savior. Right? Then, Jeremiah 6. Jeremiah 6, 16. Jeremiah 6, 16. Thus says the Lord, Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you shall find rest for your souls but they said we will not walk in it did God declare the only way the true way the ancient way the good way the way for the rest the rest that the soul needs the eternal rest that the soul needs. Did he preach it and proclaim it? Yes. And Jeremiah says he did. And this is found where? In the Lord only. Only in the Lord. Yet the people refused it. They didn't want to walk in it. So he did clearly explain the way. How about the truth? That truth is in the Lord. Isaiah 65, 16. Isaiah 65 and verse 16. Because he who is blessed in the earth shall be blessed by the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth in the earth shall swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my sight. Where is truth to be found? In the God of truth. They should not and had no need to look elsewhere for the truth. What about for life? Let's go to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13. Jeremiah 2.13 For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. What are the two evils that they committed? One, they forsook the Lord. Who is he? The fountain of living waters. He doesn't mean that he's got good, fresh, sweet water to drink every day in the physical sense. He's not talking about that. He's talking in the spiritual sense that he is the fountain of living waters. But they not only forsake him, but they resort to broken cisterns, broken wells, broken reservoirs of water that can't hold water because they're broken. They leak. So what's the point of going there? Because you're going to find that it's empty And there's barely a few drops for you to drink if they're broken. Why go elsewhere when the living water is in God himself? He says the same in 17.13. Similarly, or the same in 17.13. We'll start at 17.12. 12 and 13. Jeremiah 17.12. A glorious throne on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. What's he mean there? Heaven, where God dwells. Verse 13, O Lord, the hope of Israel, 
All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. God is the only sanctuary, the only place where they can take refuge, glorious throne on high. And he is the only hope, the only hope of Israel. If he is the only source of life, why should they forsake him? Is the point he's making. Don't forsake him. Then what about being the only way? Only way. Did the prophets preach that their God was the only way for Israel to be saved? Yes, indeed. And not only did they teach that, they also taught that he was the only way to be saved for all the nations. Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45 and verse 22. Isaiah 45, 22. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. The prophet, when he's is quoting God. God is speaking through the prophet. Turn to me and be saved. Does he say Israel? No. He says all the ends of the earth, the remotest parts of the earth. The only way that anyone could be and would be saved, even in the time of Isaiah, was for them to turn to the Lord, repent of their sins and turn to the Lord. For I am God and there is no other. This is why Jonah the prophet was sent to Nineveh in the book of Jonah, so that the Ninevites might be saved. This is why Elijah and Elisha in their days in the book of First and Second Kings, First Kings 16 to Second Kings 13, Elijah and Elisha, in those passages, they go and speak to foreigners or foreigners come and speak to them. And how... Did that turn out for those foreigners? Whether it was to the widows or whether it was to the leper, Naaman, the Syrian leper, they were saved because they turned to the God of Israel. And who is this God of Israel? None other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They turned to Christ to be saved, even throughout all of the Old Testament. Remember that Moses wrote of Christ. John 5, 39 to 47, Moses wrote of me, Jesus said. Moses preached Christ. So from Moses onward, in terms of the written books of the Bible, from Moses to Malachi, from Genesis to Malachi, Moses and Malachi and all the prophets between them preached Christ. Christ. Even from Adam, Abel, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they all believed in Christ. For the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Galatians 3 8. The gospel was preached to Abraham. He believed it and he knew that it was for those who had faith like him in Christ and for the nations who had faith in Christ, just like he did. That the promise of the Spirit might be granted to the Gentiles through faith. Galatians 3.14 Well, this truth is a very important truth. And Christ emphasizes how important this truth is by 14, verse 7. John 14, verse 7. The reason that this truth is so important, so fundamental, so essential, has to do with the fact that we cannot know God the Father unless we know Him through the Son. Verse 7, John 14, 7. If you had known me, 
you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. Now, when he says if, he doesn't mean if and you don't know me, because they do know him to some extent. But he's saying if in the terms of a conditional, if this scenario is true, then the result would also be true. If the if clause is true, the then clause of the statement would also be true. If you had known me, then you would have known my father also. This is the way it works. This is the way he means if. Not that they didn't know, but in the hypothetical, if you do know, then the other part of my statement would be true of you. And he assures them, from now on, you know him and have seen him. He's assuring them, you do know him, and from now on, you do know him because you already believe in me. You already know me. You already know who I represent, whose words I preach, who I came to please, what I came to do on behalf of the Father, to die on the cross for your sins and rise from the dead. You already know these things. You believe in these things. He's telling them. So, he stresses how to know God is impossible unless you know Him through His Son. There is no true salvific knowledge, no eternal life in knowing God unless we know Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. That is the explicit, clear teaching of Scripture here in our passage. And furthermore, we have, it, this shouldn't be new or surprising to us. This is what the Apostle has been teaching throughout this book. Let's see some examples of that. The first one will come from chapter 1. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. 14, 1, 14 to 18. 1, 14 to 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And what did he reveal? Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. He revealed the Father. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. This is the full embodiment of grace and truth in Jesus Christ. Not that grace and truth did not exist before the incarnation of Christ. Of course, Moses and the prophets preached grace and truth. But it wasn't realized in personification, in a person, in the perfect human, the last Adam. It wasn't realized in him in the incarnation until Jesus Christ came into the world. And, verse 18, no man has seen God at any time. No one has seen God at any time. So if they haven't seen him, who represents him, who explains him. It says, the only begotten, in verse 18, the only begotten, he has explained him. The Son of God explains God the Father. He explains him. There is no other teacher, no other reliable teacher for the way of salvation. John 8, John 8 17 to 19. John 8, 17 to 19. 8, 17. 
Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. And so they were saying to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. What is their deficiency? They don't know God the Father, who is the Father of Christ. My Father, as Jesus calls him. And how is it that they would know God the Father? If you knew me, you would know my Father also. That's like John 14, 7. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. They don't know the Father because they don't believe in Christ. John 10, John 10, 27, John 10, 27 to 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father, we are one. The sheep of Christ hear the voice of Christ. He knows them, they know him, and they follow him. He gives eternal life to them, they never perish. No one shall snatch them out of his hand. The same is true with God the Father. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father, we are one. The Father and the Son work in harmony to provide eternal life to the sheep. And those who receive this eternal life from the Father, of necessity, hear the voice of Christ. If they refuse to hear the voice of Christ... They do not possess eternal life, and they shall perish. 1 John 2. 1 John 2, 22. 1 John 2, 22 to 23. 1 John 2, 22. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Who is the liar? But the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Any religion, any person who says Jesus is not the Christ is a liar. And he has the spirit of the Antichrist. Because the Antichrist denies the Father and the Son. But someone might say, I don't deny the Father. I'm just denying Jesus being the Christ, the Son of the Father. But I don't deny the Father, they say. But John explains, verse 23, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. If we deny the Son, we don't have the Father. No matter what people say, I believe in the Father, I believe God, God is my Father, I am redeemed, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, I have no need to believe in the Son of God, Christ Jesus. They're not telling the truth. They are denying the Son and the Father. However, if they don't do that, the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. The very moment we say, I believe in the Son of God, by implication, Son of God means there must be a Father. Who is the Father? Who is His Father? Right? That's the way it works. Even if they say they believe God is Father, they have to ask, Father to whom? For salvation. Also, John, uh, 1 John, 1 John 5 10 to 13. 1 John 5, 10 to 13. 
The one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the witness that God has borne concerning his Son. And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life and the life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Verse 10, the one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. If we believe, then that witness, that testimony resides in us. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar. Either God tells the truth or he tells lies. We either believe what God has said through his son, through the words of his son, or we don't. If we don't, then we make God a liar. And we don't have eternal life. If we believe in the Son of God, we possess this eternal life because this life is in His Son. It doesn't exist apart from His Son. He who has the Son of God has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. And why is the Bible written? That we might believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Have this assurance, this confidence, that eternal life is your possession. That's the reason for believing. Well, these truths of Scripture that we have just mentioned, especially in verses 6 and 7, that Christ is the only way to God, the only source of forgiveness of sins, the only source of eternal life, the only source of bliss and happiness, heaven for all eternity, is a central truth of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Whoever professes faith in Christ must believe this truth. It is an undeniable, explicit, absolute doctrine of Scripture. Well, having said this, there are many, many, innumerable amount of people who actually deny this. They absolutely and actually deny this truth. And this truth is denied under various names, under various uh, labels. May I mention some of them? One, universalism. Universalism says that not only will all humans go to heaven, yes, even the worst of the genocidal maniacs of history in, in even current events, they all go to heaven. All of the mass murderers and whatever other grotesque sins that people commit, they will all go to heaven. Universalism says they will go to heaven because Jesus died for them. Even Satan and all the demons will go to heaven, according to universalism. Satan will also go to heaven. They, some of them claim to believe in free will, but suddenly free will disappears with this belief. That's false, according to the scriptures we have cited. Inclusivism. Inclusivism is another false doctrine. This says that People in other religions, as long as they are diligent and faithful in their religions, because Jesus died for every person, since God loves every person equally for salvation, since Jesus died for every person and God loves every person equally for salvation, even if they don't even hear of Christ, they never hear of Christ, they never believe in Christ, or they might hear of Christ, but practice their own religion faithfully, diligently, then they go to heaven since they say Jesus died for every person. That's inclusivism. So 
People who don't live up to their own religions, their own beliefs, their own philosophies, they don't go, but everybody else does. Inclusivism. Another doctrine is known as pluralism. Pluralism teaches that the various religions of the world have their own way and their own means of salvation. Nobody needs to believe in Jesus Christ. If you want to, then that's up to you. And if you want to be a part of the Christian religion, you believe in Jesus Christ, then that is just your way of having a better afterlife. But the various other religions of the world have their own way of belief in the afterlife. So pluralism means there are many multiple ways to go and have a better afterlife, whatever that afterlife might be. So don't be particular, don't be exclusivistic, don't preach Jesus as the only way, they say. Another false belief is known as annihilationism. Annihilationism, which teaches that when we die, there is no more afterlife. We cease to exist. We become extinct because we are mainly or primarily physical, not spiritual. So therefore, when we die, everything about us also dies and we cease to have an existence. We are annihilated. People believe that too within Christianity and outside of Christianity and all the other false religions, there are some who believe in that doctrine known as annihilationism. However, we just read how Jesus promises an afterlife. If he promises an afterlife, annihilationism could not be true. Another one, another false belief is dispensationalism. Dispensationalism believes in various periods of time in history when there are different ways of salvation, different expectations that God has for salvation, different objects of faith, different content of truth that one must believe in order to be saved. That's dispensationalism. That is, Noah believed something different, Abraham believed something different, Moses, Isaiah, David, they believed in different truths to be saved from their sins. They did not, absolutely they did not, believe in the coming death and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That happened that way in the past, they say. And also currently, some dispensationalists today, they say, currently, people don't need to believe in Christ directly. They can be saved in whatever truth they are believing now and the same in the future. It doesn't depend on direct knowledge and truth, faith in Jesus Christ. Another false doctrine is found in Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism teaches that people, many people, the majority of people, in Catholicism especially, um, will die and go to purgatory. That there is an intermediate destiny of the deceased, and that is in purgatory. And one spends many, many years, millions of years there until they are purged in the sense of penalized for the sins they have committed on the earth. So they have to be purged in that kind of penalty for a long, long time before they actually reach heaven. That's one way that their falsehood is promoted. So if that's the way, then why did Jesus die on the cross? What's the purpose of his death? If we're paying for our sins in purgatory, why did Jesus die on the cross? Well, they say he died to take care of some of the problem of our sin, but not the full problem. So Jesus plus our own punishment combined together pays for our sins. Not only do they say that, but they say one must believe in Mary as a co Redemptrix, meaning another redeemer. We have Jesus as a redeemer, but Mary is also a redeemer. And not only is she a redeemer, but angels are, other saints are. They all, in one way or another, are interceding for our salvation. And if they don't, we're not saved. 
It's not good enough to believe in Christ alone for salvation. Not true. Not true. Also, works salvation. There are many people who have a a civil life. They live a civil life. They are good neighbors. They're honest people. They go to work. They raise a family. They don't cause trouble. They don't riot and loot and pillage in their neighborhoods, the stores. They don't go and do things like that. They live a civil life. And they think that because they were hard workers, they were good husbands, good wives, good fathers, good mothers, that they were good citizens, that they were good soldiers, that therefore they deserve to go to heaven because they didn't commit any of the egregious sins that people commit. They weren't rapists. They weren't mass murderers. They weren't sex traffickers. They weren't doing things like that. They lived a decent civil life. So they think that their good works are what is necessary for heaven. But Christ said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. We must believe in him, not have confidence in ourselves, but confidence or faith in him to be saved. Good works don't do it either. Whether that's good works in Christianity or good works outside of Christianity, no works salvation. Another is hedonism. Hedonism, which is often promoted in mega churches. Yes, there are other churches that promote it and religions that promote it, but in Christianity, often it's in mega churches that promote hedonism. By hedonism, it means love of pleasure. Love of pleasure. I want to have my best life now, they say. We are supposed to have our health and wealth now. We're supposed to have happiness now, goodness now, peace now, everything I want. I want to live my life the way I want to live it, with all of the pleasures of life the way I want it now, without any afflictions, without any persecutions. I want it now, and then live with God forever. Where I'm going to, if I'm able to play golf now, I will play golf in heaven forever. If I have my pets now, I'm going to have my pets in heaven forever. Whatever it is that is our our idolatry now, our love of pleasure now, they imagine that they are going to experience it not only now, but for all eternity. This is hedonism. This is a subversion of faith in Christ. Because Christ was not a hedonist. He said, if any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Luke 9, 23. Further, cultism. Cultism. Um, by cultism, we, we are mostly speaking of those groups within Christianity that claim to be Christian, but they're not Christian. So Christian cults which are not actually Christian, but claim to be so. We're speaking of Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and others like them. They have, as well as many others, but especially them, they have a deficient and distorted view of who the person of Christ is and why he came into the world. A distorted view of the person of Christ and why he came into the world, why he died on the cross, why he rose from the dead, what it means to have faith in him. They have a distorted view of the nature of man, the nature of God, the nature of Christ, and the nature of the work of Christ on the earth. They completely miss it, even though they have a lot of zeal for religion. They have a lot of zeal for religion, yet it's a false religion. So if they believe in a false Christ, they don't believe in Christ. If they don't believe in why he died on the cross, then they don't understand the cross, the sacrifice of Christ. And if they don't understand the person and the work of Christ, how can they be saved? They're not saved. They need to repent. These doctrines, all of these doctrines, they are serious, they are egregious, they are blasphemous against the true doctrine of Scripture. Because the true doctrine of Scripture points to our only way of salvation in Christ. And they basically throw mud or spit 
on the face of Christ. These false doctrines spit on the face of Christ. They diminish his true identity and they diminish his true ministry on the earth. His true identity and his true ministry. How could we do so to God himself? Denying who God really is or the Savior who he really is and the way that he has explained as the way of salvation. That's why this is such an important doctrine. It's very solemn. We must take it seriously. Christ, the only way of salvation. Faith in him. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.